Hey, and ladies, just a heads up that we're going to be mentioning some instances of sexual abuse in this episode. So if you prefer to sit this one out, we totally understand. You do you and we love you. For the first two years I was on set, every time I would go on a different set in a different city or a different state or a different country and someone, the boom operator would be like, thank God you're here. You know, and I'd have actors be like, I have to get myself to sleep at night with scenes that happened that we let go to far years ago. And, you know, that's, that's the stuff we're really up against here. Kristen, you know two of the things I always find myself wondering when I watch a sex scene in a movie? Oh my, only two? <laughs> <laughs> One, how naked are they really mm, mm-hmm, under that mm-hmm. L-shaped blanket yes. that, that hides the woman's chest and not the man's? N- number two, how awkward is it behind the scenes, like on set? Because, you know, what we see is usually really hot and there's like sweeping music and all of that stuff. But on set, is it just quiet? Do you have to hear like the camera guy chewing gum when you're trying to stage this scene? These are important questions that I just wonder about. Basically, what is it like shooting a sex scene when people are watching in real time? (laughs) Yeah, okay, that's a good way to sum it up. (laughs) Well, it turns out until about five, yes, Five years ago, a lot of people weren't thinking about those very important questions. Like, staging a sex scene was kind of the Wild West. The actors took their places, the director called action, and whatever happened next was largely improvised. Which can be fine. I mean, actors are trained professionals. Yeah, but if you think about Hollywood sets like workplaces, which they are— It sounds like an HR nightmare, frankly. You've got the boss, the director, instructing their employees, the actors, to make out with each other and just rip each other's clothes off in front of their co-workers, a.k.a. the crew. Like, what could possibly go wrong? Enter the intimacy coordinator. It's one of the newest, buzziest roles in entertainment. And I'm going to say it, it's a very unladylike job. An intimacy coordinator is a movement coach, a liaison between actors and uh, production, and they are advocates for oftentimes for actors, but oftentimes for pretty much everyone in the room that is part of an intimate scene. That's today's guest, Alicia Rodas, the head intimacy coordinator at HBO Studios. Alicia is not only one of the best in the biz, she's one of the folks who made intimacy coordinators a standardized profession. It shouldn't be so revolutionary to have a boundary and stick to it. Mm. And yet it is when it comes to nudity and simulated sex and, and a lot of things, really. So today, Alicia's taking us behind the scenes of what all it takes to simulate sex safely. Before we get back to Alicia, it's important to understand why intimacy coordinators are so crucial. Because even if you're just acting, getting physical on camera with zero guidelines can have very real and traumatic consequences. 
One of the most infamous examples of this is the 1972 Bernardo Bertolucci film Last Tango in Paris. It's about two people in an abusive relationship, played by Marlon Brando, who was 48 at the time, and French actress Maria Schneider, who was just 19. The two were set to film a rape scene, and unbeknownst to Schneider, Marlon Brando and the director decided Brando's character would grab a stick of butter and make it look to the audience like he was using it on Schneider as lubricant. Brando and the director didn't give Schneider a heads up about the unscripted move with the butter because they wanted an authentic reaction from her character. So, rather than letting her act, the men made her feel actually unsafe. You know, for art. And if you're like, well, but y'all, that was back in the 70s, things were different, Uh, let's talk about Game of Thrones. There were no intimacy protocols in place. Like, all that sex, incest, all the rape, yeah, like, just go for it. Yeah, just go for it. Meanwhile, Amelia Clark, a.k.a. Daenerys, the mother of dragons, told an interviewer that she was so desperate to be seen as professional, quote, that I'd be like, yeah, sure, for anything they threw at me. I'll just cry about it in the bathroom later. Whatever. You won't know. And the list goes on. The stars of Blue is the Warmest Color, Leia Seydoux and Adele Exarchopoulos, said they felt humiliated while shooting an extra-long simulated sex scene in that movie. Claire Foy, who plays Queen Elizabeth in The Crown, recently told The Guardian about how much she hates shooting these scenes. Rosie Perez has called her nude scene in Do the Right Thing one of the most humiliating experiences of her career. And this isn't just an issue on set, either. Auditioning for roles that involve nudity or sex can make actors feel pressured to do things they're uncomfortable with. Which brings us to our intimacy coordinator, Alicia Rodas. I think that there can be a magical sort of thinking around intimate scenes where it's like we can talk about crafting high-speed car chases and crafting really specific shots, except when it came to intimate scenes and it was like, well, if you're going to kiss someone, you just kiss them. And it's like, well, what if we're not interested in how they kiss, we're interested in how their character kisses? And we're not interested in how that person has sex. We're interested in how their character has sex and what the story is there. Now, how long have intimacy coordinators existed? So it's a great question. And as far as a specialist being brought on to work on an intimate scene, you know, this has been happening here and there for quite some time. But really the standardized practice and the surge that we had of uh, intimacy directors and coordinators being uh, in the world um, and really putting, putting a markdown on the map has really started just around 2016. Alicia had a lot of experience with directors taking a lackadaisical approach to intimacy on set. She grew up acting in school and in community theater, and pretty much as soon as puberty hit, Alicia found herself getting typecast. It's kind of been a running joke with my family since I was around 14 years old. I played every slutty best friend there was. <laughs> so like from, <laughs> from the community theater production of Oklahoma to the, you know, the um, you know, random professional gigs that I got into. It's like if there was a prostitute, I usually was getting cast. <laughs> so 
I was often playing these roles that had uh, either intimate situations that were happening with them or just had to really exude sexuality in different ways. And during those early years acting and through her conservatory training, Alicia had a bunch of positive, empowering experiences. But she also had some less-than-ideal ones, from outright bullying to the folks in charge kind of pussyfooting around what they actually wanted. I would go on to do a show where I was being topless, you know, on like a Boardwalk Empire episode doing background. And I'd be like, so is anyone going to tell me when I'm taking my top off? Because everyone's talking around it, but no one is telling me when we're actually going to do this. Mm. (laughs) Um, So there was just so much that happened and that it was just, uh, there was situations where just people didn't have the communication skills necessary. Eventually, Alicia transitioned from acting roles to working as a stunt person and a fight director, so the person responsible for staging things like sword fighting and other physical violence. But she frequently found herself also being asked to weigh in on intimate scenes to fill those gaps in communication on set. Like in 2013, when she was working as a fight director for a stage production of Othello. The director said, you know, I really love that you're a woman. And I got that all the time as a fight director. Oh, you're a woman. Great. We've got a sexual assault scene. We're not really, you know, do you have any idea how to go about this? And I was like, God, we have all of these specifics that we have for going into a violent scene. But any scene of intimacy, whether there is violence or not, we had really no specifics for. So... You know, I ended up working on this uh, this show, and one of the actors came to me and said, "I'm really excited about this. I want to tell you I, I have a history of um, of domestic violence in my in my past, but I've done my work. Like I'm okay. I'm just really excited to work on this." And I was like, "Oh my god! So how are we going to go through and do this show and help mitigate as much harm as we can for this person?" On another job, a group of NYU film students Alicia was working with asked her about how to handle an upcoming scene depicting sex. I was like, well, let's look at the SAG-AFTRA protocols. And I'm like, okay, there are no SAG-AFTRA protocols, Mm. it looks like. In fact, I don't see any protocols anywhere for a sex scene. So let's treat this how we just treated the last stunt we did. Yep. SAG-AFTRA, the actors' union, which ostensibly exists to protect actors, had no protections in place. Fight scenes? Yeah, totally. Simulated sex and sexual assault? Nope. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, Alicia walks us through the five C's of intimacy direction. We're back with Alicia Rodas. In Alicia's days as an actor and stunt performer, there was always someone on set who'd break down exactly what she could expect in the scene. I would get hired for something, and I had someone being like, this is a 10-foot high fall that we're going to be doing. It's like, okay, great. I get cast, and then it was like, hey, we were just, you know, on location, and it's probably going to actually be more like a 12-foot high fall. How do you feel about that? Okay, this is what we're doing to keep you safe. You know, there was someone whose expertise and specialty was in creating that scene of violence. But then I would come in to do an intimate scene, and there was nobody. And hopefully, 
you had a director or an AD or someone who knew how to have the conversation. Um, but it, it was not the experience that I had and not the experience that most actors that I was working with had had. Alicia was increasingly convinced that intimate scenes deserved a more formalized approach. So in 2015, she reached out to a fellow fight director and movement coach, Tonia Cena. Now, back in 2006, Tonia published her master's thesis arguing for dedicated professionals to choreograph intimate scenes, which was groundbreaking because that's the first time that we know of that anyone called for it. Together with a third movement coach, Siobhan Richardson, Alicia and Tonia started ironing out best practices for directing sex and intimacy on stage. The three founded Intimacy Directors International, now called Intimacy Directors and Coordinators, or IDC. IDC pioneered guidelines for bringing intimacy direction to TV and film sets. They also train up-and-coming coordinators in implementing the five C's of safely staging intimate scenes. The pillars are uh, context, consent, communication, choreography, and closure. And those are, you know, the order that you go in to address an intimate scene, but they're also just on their own uh, sort of bullet points in things we want to consider during intimate scenes. Coordinators are skilled not only around consent, but also stuff like conflict resolution and bystander intervention. They have to know how to use modesty garments that cover breasts and genitals and barriers that prevent any unnecessary skin contact between actors. And the choreography aspect of the work can be super granular. It's not just like, okay, the characters are supposed to kiss, so actors, say the line and kiss. It's more like, Okay, so one character is supposed to be nervous about kissing the other. So first, the actor should tentatively put their hand on the other actor's face. Then take a beat before slowly coming together on the count of three. And their skill sets come into play for non-explicit interactions as well. Ma'am Smith, who was working on Westworld, talked about how they called her in for it was a hand being placed on a young boy's head. And she was like, why are you calling me in for this? And she was reading the scripts and she's like, oh, I see. The adult is playing a pedophile. And we're not seeing any sexual moment, of course, happening between that actor and the minor. But it is simply an interaction, a physical interaction that the actors, the director, the producers all want more support for. And someone to make sure everyone understands the context of what they're in and how we are doing this. The challenge initially, though, was getting buy-in from TV and film executives. Anytime we reached out, there was it was sort of an echo chamber. We weren't hearing anything back. Um, or actually, if we were hearing something back, it was, oh, that sounds like a great idea. That sounds too expensive. We're not interested. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then, Me Too happened. And that was sort of when the phone started to ring. Me Too lit the fire under everyone's ass to say, oh, we knew that there was maybe a bit of a problem, but that's just the way it goes. But yeah, I mean, Me Too happened and that everyone said, oh, maybe there is something going on. And, you know, I think some of it was fear. Some of it was certainly fear that caused people to get on the phone and call me. But, you know, thank God they did. 
One of the very first calls Alicia got was from a producer on The Deuce, an HBO show about the early porn industry in the 70s. Just as they were starting to shoot the second season, two of the leads, Maggie Gyllenhaal and Emily Mead, asked the showrunners to bring someone on set to make sure that all the sex scenes they were going to be shooting would be done safely. A producer did a little Googling and then called Alicia. And bless him. And I've talked about this before, and I've called him on it before, where it sounded like he was calling a prostitute. He didn't really know how to how to say. He was just like, I'm looking at a website, and I see you have a service, and we are interested. I have, I have saved this voicemail because it still cracks me up. And he ended it with, I swear I'm an HBO producer. <laughs> the next day? Alicia was on set. Could you walk us through a particular scene from The Deuce that you coordinated to kind of give us a sense of, like, the protocols that you have in place and how they play out? When I worked with Emily Mead a a whole lot, you know, Emily was playing a porn star and had many simulated sex and nude scenes with day players who would be brought in. There was a scene where uh, Emily's character, Lori, was performing oral sex on a person with a penis during a, uh, you know, it was the play within a play. It was the pornography that we were were shooting them shooting pornography, Mm. but it's all fake porn. So it was like, okay, so how are we going to achieve this? What are you looking for from this? Do you need her face? Is this something that we can fake without a prosthetic? Or do we need a prosthetic? Do we need her mouth on the prosthetic? Are we going to be far enough back that, you know, we can fake it? Or does she actually have to have her mouth on the prosthetic? We went through really the specifics. And and I sort of, I often will push to get as many answers as I can. Um, And then once I found out about that, it was like, okay, so... Um, my next step is that I'm going to call the actor. You know, I let her know, yes, we're using a prosthetic. Yes, they are asking for your mouth to be on it. However, a lot of the shots are going to be like from behind the the person who is wearing the prosthetic, um, behind their back, et cetera. And so we talk through all the specifics and uh, clarify rider language, make sure because there's a nudity or simulated sex rider that SAG After makes every actor have, which is fantastic. Um, and then I start going through the departments. Hey, makeup department, we need a prosthetic that is going to also be in a person's mouth. Let's talk about how we're making this hygienic. Let's talk about how we can even put some flavor <laughs> so that it's not, so that it's a little bit more, um, uh, pleasant for the person. You know, I'll make sure I bring my stunt kit that has some knee pads. And then when that person is cast, who is playing the person who's wearing the prosthetic, who's the other pornographic actor, um, that I have a conversation with him. He has all of the information about how we were shooting the scene, what it was going to be like, you know, just keeping it professional. Uh, And then, you know, once we had all that, Ryder has gone out, it's gone through everyone's reps and everything. Um, all the departments are set up, wardrobe knows, everyone knows. Then we get there that day, we have a safety meeting of just saying, like, this is how we're closing the set. This is, you know, these monitors are cut off. This is what's happening here. Um, at any point, if anyone needs to stop or a break or or is like, I don't want to do this anymore, you let us know, you know, and we will stop. Um and then with uh, Emily and the actor that she was interacting with, it was like, okay, let's talk about um, where it's okay to have hands, what's okay, what's not okay, so that we know what our playing space is. 
In 2018, the New York Times reported on Alicia's work on the deuce in an article headlined, How Do You Play a Porn Star in the Me Too Era? With Help from an Intimacy Director. Within a week, Alicia says she'd received hundreds of emails from producers wanting help for their projects, too. And pretty soon, HBO not only brought on Alicia full-time, but also mandated intimacy coordinators for all of their productions. Other networks quickly followed HBO's lead. Netflix, Hulu, Stars, and Amazon all hired their own. In 2020 alone, 23 Emmy-nominated shows had intimacy coordinators listed in the credits. Also in 2020, SAG-AFTRA, the Actors Union, released its own protocols for intimacy on screen and the audition room with Alicia's help. We're going to take another break. When we come back, what it's like on set when not everybody's thrilled the intimacy coordinator is there. We're back with Alicia Rodas. Do you ever get pushback uh, from anyone on set? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. There are exceedingly high-feeling stakes on these productions because there's a lot of money and a lot of urgency and a lot of ego. We can't pretend that's not a thing. Resistance used to be, one, it was fear of losing ownership of the artistry of the scene, which I get, but in that case, it's like, you just got to remember that we're collaborators. Um, But if you have all the information and know exactly how this is going to go, great, Um, then allow me to be another person in the room that helps mitigate some of the power that is going on here. Um, Because that's the thing, right? Like, these directors and producers, they have a huge amount of power. And acknowledging that is very uncomfortable. And acknowledging that this is a practice that is useful and even necessary is also uncomfortable because it might force a director, a producer, or even an actor to recognize that there may have been some harm caused in the past that they were a part of. And that's very uncomfortable and can be very painful. And So, you know, when I get resistance, uh, I try to first assure that I'm not there to get in the way. I'm there to to help enhance the process and help the directors and producers and actors achieve their vision. Um, I am a craftsperson in that way um, and an artist in my own right. But also that, like, it's okay to change. It's okay to evolve. Um, And you know, I can look at things that I did even a year ago on set that I'm like, oh, that was not probably my best practice. Or, or I'm glad I have continued to evolve in my practice since then. In the cases that you do get pushback or resistance, is it likelier to come from people behind the camera or in front of the camera? Mm. More so than not, it's from behind the camera. But sometimes it's from, you know, I've been in interesting situations where it's the person behind the camera who is like, thank 
God, you're here. I have no idea how to say this. I have no idea how to talk about this. And then the actors are like, we don't want an intimacy coordinator. We're not interested. You just tell us what to do. And the director doesn't want to say, I have no idea how to say this. (laughs) (laughs) And so I have been there when I'm just like, hey, y'all are good. Need a breath mint? Okay, cool. And then I'll sit there with the director and he's like, I'm not getting this. How do I ask them for this? I'm like, you might want to consider this. (laughs) And so... You know, usually there's some way to um, to work in a situation, um, you know, even with some resistance. And sometimes it's also just finding my advocate. If I'm getting resistance on all sides, then that's when I might go to a producer or go to someone else and be like, so I'm not really getting the things that I need to do my job. Um, I'm not getting the conversations. I'm unable to do the minimum that is what I need to do to ensure the protocols are being followed. Um how can I make this happen? What can I do? And I'm I'm in a charmed position because I also work for the studio now. So I do have access to production coordinators and other folks that can come in and say, you need to have these conversations. Well, as an intimacy coordinator, beyond choreographing scenes, making sure people are comfortable with what they are doing in the scene— How do you approach conversations with actors around putting up boundaries between what's happening on set that day and their own personal and emotional lives? Mm. Yeah. It's not just with actors, really. (laughs) I mean, I I can't tell you how much support I've, I've ended up providing for crew members just in, you know, in conversations on set. I'm sure you all are aware in the you know, the insane pressure and long hours and difficulty that we can have on sets, um, even when safety is being considered. I used to have actors come to me and be like, you know, I'm on stage every night with this person and every night we're kissing each other and every night we're hugging each other and every night we're holding each other and simulating all of this, this intimacy together. And I'm starting to have feelings for them. And I wonder why. It's like, well, I think I know why, because <laughs> you put your body in a certain position, especially with someone else, there, there is connection that occurs, and, and I don't think anyone's denying that. That's where the last pillar of intimacy coordination comes in. Closure. Alicia makes sure that at the end of shooting a scene, actors take the time to put the character and their traumas or emotions away. And it's anything from a whole de-rolling process that you might use um, after a scene or breath or some kinesthetic movement or, um, you know, something that allows you to just close off and have that separation. Um, to be honest, a lot of it can feel that way just in removing hair and makeup at the end of the day or at the end of doing that scene. At the very least, I'm like hey, we're done with that scene, we're moving on, please go and, you know, say goodbye to your fellow actor who is, you know, done for the day. And usually it's after they've had the scene, it's like, ah, thank you so much, and it's a hug, or it's a handshake, or it's something that says, thank you for your work, we are done now. We are separating this, we are moving on. And, you know, there shows like Underground Railroad had mental health advisors on set who were just as important to the set as anyone else who was there. Um, so all of that I'm a, I'm a big fan of and will definitely recommend, especially if we're into some, some more difficult, traumatic uh, work that we're doing or traumatic stories. Well, Alicia, what do you hope for the future of intimacy direction? 
I would love to see the recognition of intimacy directors and coordinators as a collaborative, creative um, department head for each production that has intimacy. Um, And I would like to see this group of professionals diversify. So, and that means, you know, look at who you're mentoring and uh, find the ways to lift up other marginalized communities so that this really is a profession and a, a theory that can help keep us all safe. And a union contract, a union contract would be <laughs> oh, great. Oh, hell yes. Well, is there anything we have not asked you about what you do, why you do it, what's needed, anything uh, that you think listeners should know? Hmm. I guess I would invite your listeners to consider where they might want to put up boundaries in their lives. Um, or to consider what it is that is something that maybe they've accepted for a long time that, you know, maybe they don't have to. And I would also um, uh, offer, suggest that um, everyone look to what their emotional fitness is looking like and, and take time for themselves on that. about Alicia Rodas and intimacy coordinating, you can head over to her organization's website, idcprofessionals.com. Y'all can find us at Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Unladylike Media. You can also drop us a line at hello at unladylike.co. And you can support Caroline and me directly by joining our Patreon. Over there, you'll get instant access to more than 70 existing bonus episodes and a new bonus every week, including our scientific detour into the new research on the COVID-19 vaccine and menstruation. Trey, unladylike. You can find it all over at patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. Nora Ritchie is the senior producer of Unladylike. Michelle O'Brien is our associate producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marate transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Ami Mae Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing is by Jared O'Connell. Sound design and additional music is by Casey Holford and Andy Christens. Executive producers are Peter Clowney, Daisy Rosario, and Unladylike Media. Very special, loving shout-out to Andy Christens, who was the engineer on this show for years. She is moving on to a new position, and we want to say, Andy, you are the human embodiment of joy and delight. <laughs> we loved working with you, and we will greatly miss you. This podcast was created by your hosts, Kristen Conger. And Caroline Irvin of Unladylike Media. Next week... Sex and romance novels is such an incredible tool for a writer to be able to like create an emotional scene for two people that you otherwise just cannot hit that note and I think that is what I love about romance and what makes it so hard for me to like read books that aren't romance because I'm like where is the fucking like I'm just like I'm like like, there's there's like emotional things in this plot that can only be resolved by these two characters having sex We're talking with the wildly popular romance author Casey McQuiston. Casey tells us why they write romance novels and the power of a crush. Plus, we dive into the history of the romance novel, and it is spicy. Oh, 
the heaving bosoms. <laughs> Y'all don't want to miss this episode, so make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike. Find us in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. And possibly an intimacy coordinator. <laughs> I had to do like a dental surgery thing earlier. Oh, God. Oh. Oh, yeah. I, I do not wish gum surgery on anyone. Oh, my God. You're truly. talking about after gum surgery? <laughs> well, it was the removal of the stitches after gum surgery. So well, it's still. Like much more chill. <laughs> Stitcher. <laughs>